Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Chef Bashir Mounier. Chef Mounier is part of a new generation of Toronto chefs who are inspired for, by global cuisine while creating the future of local and sustainable food ideas. His experience of food embraces many geographical and cultural boundaries. He was born in Somalia and raised in Italy. He has called Toronto home for the past 28 years. Growing up in the Mediterranean, he was very influenced by fresh seasonal foods. Chef Bashir continues this tradition today through his farmer's market operations where he connects to the local farming and artisanal food business community. His approach to cooking is simple. He is a passionate advocate for promoting diverse food representative of Toronto's multicultural communities. He believes and advocates for access to good quality food for everyone. Currently, Chef Bashir is a culinary professor at George Brown College, a food consultant, recipe developer, and an academic researcher. Good morning, Chef Bashir, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning, Rosanna. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I know we've been trying to connect for several months and seems like everybody's so busy, even through this uh, tumultuous time of the pandemic. So I'm thrilled that you were able to find some time today. Um, and, you know, reading your bio, um, it strikes me that you've been doing so many different things over your career in Toronto, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you were born and raised. I know I mentioned you were born in Somalia, but raised in Italy, and I thought perhaps we can start with that. Um, you know, how old were you when you went to Italy, and, and what was that experience of living in Italy? How did that shape you and your culinary traditions? Yeah, so I was born uh, in the beautiful land of Somalia. They call it the land of poets. Um, I was uh, I was born in a time that it was like post-colonization. And uh, just uh, 1979, I moved to Italy. I was about five years old. Um, my mother was a very strong, resilient woman who uh, did not really uh, embrace much of the patriarchal way of living of Somali people. She moved to Italy, she maintained her business and uh, she raised me in a boarding school as well. So although I'm Muslim, I grew up with a, in a Christian Catholic boarding school in Italy. Uh, there was a bit of a culture shock coming from Somalia that uh, has been a, a very beautiful place that it will always be in my heart and shaped a lot the way how I connect with food as well. And uh, this, that, that journey from Italy um, during civil war, I migrated from Italy to the States. I lived in Virginia for a couple of years. Again, a bit more of a culture shock, uh, seeing cowboys wearing strap boots and a cowboy hat. Uh, I ran from my life uh, to Toronto and I've been in Toronto now for 28 years. Um, I, I really fall in love with cooking around 1996. I was quite young. I didn't really have a, a defined purpose. Uh, my mother's aspiration for me was to become a lawyer, an academic. 
a politician, but it didn't really uh, stay with me. Perhaps I have a too many ADD and ADHD that doesn't allow me to stay, <laughs> sit and put in a cubicle office on a Monday to Friday, nine to five. Um, I did my first training program in 1996 at YMCA uh, in the Great Toronto, and there was like love at first bite. And uh, I went to, I worked in other restaurants, boutique hotels, and then I went back to George Brown College in 2000. Um, so I'm a George Brown College alumni, and now, you know, 25 years later, I find myself uh, back into the place where I actually started my culinary journey. Um, yeah, so it's been a quite a long way for me to find myself uh, um, comfortable in my own skin, uh, both as a person, but also as a chef navigating to a lot of the isms that we are experiencing in the food industry. And uh, I guess that's some of the conversation that we'll be having today as well. For sure. We're going to touch on a few of those isms, as you mentioned. Um, but it sounds like you've had such a varied career, you know, living in different countries, being influenced by different cultures, um, and then finally settling into Toronto, which is such a multicultural city, um, where I'm sure your, your, um, your cooking style probably flourished through that, through that um, reality of, of Toronto. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about education, because you went through the culinary school at George Brown, like you said, but now you're also back in the academic world and you're teaching. Um, and there's so much talk of edu education today. Last week, we had a, an actual roundtable discussion on the state of hospitality education. Um, how do you see education fitting into today's um, culinary experience with students? I mean, our students, it seems like there's declining enrollment in a lot of schools today. What do you and how did you find that education shaped you specifically? Um, are you an advocate that it's best to go through a culinary program as opposed to learning, you know, on the job? What, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a strong believer that education is extremely important. Most of our workplaces provide you the how-to. Education is supposed to be fostering the why. And that's one thing that I find that is extremely important that perhaps a lot of education places are offering or could be offering, it's more developing about critical thinking. So when you are in the workplace, justifiably so, the employer has an expectation that you understand the critical reasoning behind many of the choices of the business. So I find that there is imperative for educators to provide the why. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? So then later on, they can adapt make changes, but perhaps also shape and influence the new way that we can possibly think about food in the near future. So I am a strong, strong advocate for education, but I feel that also education specifically uh, for a vocational space um, in, the, in, in the food skills has to be a balance between skills, trade, because the hospitality industry need, need people who are skilled, but also people who are critical thinkers uh, to be able to make changes within the food system. And I would imagine that today's students are very different from students of the past. And I think they are more critical thinkers, but their expectations, I think, of schools are a little bit different today. When you're speaking to today's students, what is it that you think they want more from, from the hospitality schools? What would they like to see change? Have you got any perspective on that? 
Yeah, I, I have a student said that I meet on a daily basis, but I feel that it's been a, a for far too long, there has been a very much of an indoctrination on uh, how things used to be. Built in the old uh, August Escofia system, a very structural environment. And uh, I feel that there's been a lot of a change. There's been a lot of a conversation on making places uh, of education and also places of employment, not necessarily uh, driven by their old regimental way. Um, I feel unfortunately that a lot of uh, uh, social media content has uh, uh, shaped the way students uh, think and see food. And uh, in our classes, specifically in my class, uh, really trying to focus food for the primary nature of why we consume food above and beyond the skills that we provide. Why do we eat? Why do we cook? So in my classes, uh, it's more about why chef versus we chef. There's a major difference between we chef, which is the indoctrination that the Augusto Escoffier uh, had provided. You know, this is why we do what we do. And um, I feel at this moment right now, that a lot of uh, young cooks uh, are really reflecting specifically for the past uh, two years uh, during and now post COVID in trying to reimagine the way food could be or how the food industry can be. And again, going back in addressing some of the isms, a lot of them are starting to really think about it, perhaps finding the balance between work, family, you know, mm -hmm. finding the balance between taking care about your own mental health while you're still driven to ensure that the customer's food profession can still be met. So there are new conversations that perhaps when I attended school, they were not necessarily fostered. And there are great educators that are really pushing the students to think a little bit more critically and trying to reimagine what food systems can look like through an educational space. I, I love that approach. I love from you know the we to the why. I think that's fabulous. And, um, and I think it's time that some of that gets changed for sure. It sounds like it's a more holistic approach to food. And also, um, you know, food as functionality, you know, in terms of feeding us and sustaining us, but also you're very big on sustainability and local cuisine. So let's talk a little bit about your food philosophy there and what's been shaping that. Sure. Um, as you heard about my journey from Somalia to Italy, to the States, to Canada, um, what I define a coin, I, I coin a term called the nomadic comfort cooking. So my style of a cooking is called the nomadic comfort cooking. It is very much based on my own pastoral and nomadic heritage. Somali people as a pastoral community, we actually consume more camel meat per capita than any other country in the world. And this element of a nomadism or cultural nomadism it is very much rooted on the terroir and the adaptability of nomads going through this uh, arid environment and being able to adapt to what the land is providing you. So it's very much rooted in the form of a sustainability where you actually, while you're going through this journey to care for your cattle, you also explore and find the new vegetation. And through a very sustainable philosophy, you only take through your journey what you can carry with you. Therefore, in the Somali culture, we don't have a, a history of imposed agricultural food system. 
because we are nomads. And the same principle of, uh, of a sustainability and nomadism had also shaped me while I was in Italy, living in a small town outside Rome, eating only local ingredients. Again, locality is based on seasonality as well. And from town to town, from region to region, in Italy, the food vary. So I grew up with this form of a food that is based only on what the land gives you. But it has always been a little bit of a yearning for me to this nomadism to the States and Canada, where I didn't really see myself within the composition of the plate, nor I seen myself for food that is culturally appropriate to me. And part of my uh, advocacy is to really find this intersectionality between local and diversity. When we're thinking about locality, I think about Jamie Kennedy, you know, a very white chef that is holding a bunch of asparagus, screaming the liberation of, a, of food. And I love the ideology, but I feel that nowadays it's so important to really focus on the contribution of so many communities that make specifically for us here in Southern Ontario, our food to be so vibrant. Now, I know earlier we were talking briefly around the terminology of uh, multiculturalism and diversity. And I love those terms because it's something that I'm really fond of. Eh? But oftentimes when we talk about diversity and multiculturalism, we really lift the carpet and we sweep indigeneity, we sweep indigeneity underneath that carpet. Because when we reflect on our identity as Canadians, we don't really speak through the lenses of what this land used to be prior of settlers. So in my classes, I speak a lot around the importance to really reflect that when we're making choices, as an example for us to think around our food sovereignty, on whose land are we having those conversations? So I feel that it's really important for us as educators, not only to think about the sustainability of food, but also the sovereignty of people into the food system. The food industry, like the restaurant and hospitality, it's only a fragment of the big picture of the actual food system that we are. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation today because oftentimes in a lot of academic spaces or in the hospitality industry, those conversations are not really explored. That's a really important part, and it's not something we hear very often. You're absolutely right. So it's great that you're acknowledging that and also um, seeing how those contributions shape the Canadian um, palate and, and how it should shape the Canadian palate. I would suppose, too, that being in Canada because of our, you know, shortened growing season, as much as we want to be very focused on supporting local, it's not always easy to do throughout the year. So that's where I, I would assume that you're bringing in um, the importance of doing that while keeping mind, you know, over what the realities are. How, how do you deal with those realities to, to ensure that you're still producing local, but maybe with a global twist? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, for, for myself as a chef, that intersectionality is also very much driven by spices and seasonings. And during the spring and summertime, I was able to do a research five, about five years ago with both Greenbelt Fund of Ontario and to Omafra and trying to find out that the fact that 70% of the world crops at optimum season can grow here in Ontario. That's so huge. I'm a strong believer and advocate that 
if we have the land uh, that allows us to grow food in a agroecologically sound methods, we can create a very beautiful, vibrant plate. You know, while before, I remember when the first Italians that migrated post-war, First World War, um, they came and uh, they, they brought a lot of seeds from different regions of Italy. They brought rapini, they brought a lot of uh, varieties of, you know, San Marzano tomato, and the list goes on and on and on. So over the years, a lot of those communities, they were able to really shape agricultural system by bringing those seeds. So I'm a strong believer that maintaining diversity, it requires it for people from those communities to be able to grow food that is culturally appropriate to them in order for us to be able to eat fresh seasonal ingredients throughout the year. Now, a lot of our crops, specifically for people coming from the global south, those crops, they don't grow well during the winter time. But we do have a variety of uh, greens that they grow well um, during the winter time as well. Uh, there are a lot of uh, hydroponic places. There are a lot mm -hmm. of uh, farmers nowadays also have a lot of uh, greenhouses as well. So I feel that that's a way to be able to incorporate a locality and diversity. Again, the advocacy is not to grow bananas you know, to impose more than the land can actually do. We are not growing coconut, but we're growing greens and particular items that comfortably they can grow here in Southern Ontario. So I feel that the way to make that vibrancy is really to engage and support with different resources, those diverse farmers to make our plate more vibrant. So the farm community is obviously very important to every chef that, uh, that works, but uh, I know you've been very involved in the farmers markets and maybe let's talk a little bit about that for a few minutes. Sure, I, I find that the secret for some of the most successful chefs, uh, they are around farmers because when you have farmers, specifically those ones who are growing in an organic way or those ones who are actually using seeds from heritage seeds, I find that it's like some of the most beautiful for me as a chef and really intoxicating flavors, like being able to see a vibrancy with like seven tomatoes during the summertime, 10 tomatoes with so many different colors. I did travel quite in different parts of Europe, in the continent as well, and also in the States. And I find here the tomatoes are so beautiful and refreshing. We have a heirloom variety of seeds for carrots and so forth. So I think it's so easy for a chef to be able to make and compose beautiful plates, but really fostering these heirloom varieties of ingredients instead of just like the genetically modified crops or very like a one type of a carrot as well. So for me and my advocacy as a chef, as an educator, is really trying to support those farmers. I launched my first business about 12 years ago called Simply Fresh. And the goal was for me, again, uh, yearning to uh, create my own food narratives and trying to do food that is culturally appropriate to me while I'm doing also this exploration of what the land has to offer me, which later on branched off to one particular business called My Little Dumplings. And My Little Dumplings was my first uh, farm to table, culturally diverse dumplings from a gnocchi to gyoza, from baozi to papusa, pierogi, samosa. I was doing um, all of them by using Ontario milled flour, local seasonal Canadian ingredients. And again, putting a little bit of a spin and uh, 
you know, if I will have to do a TED talk right now, I will be, uh, I will be asking myself, you know, why were you doing that? And it wasn't necessarily about the dumplings of the business. There has always been this need for me to showcase that as much as our shell outside might be berry, what makes it really special is like really what's on the inside. So that was my metaphor and my analogy to think about diversity, contribution of a diverse community within here in Ontario by using the humble dumpling as a way to talk about those, those issues. So farming to me, it's a, the most important thing for chefs to be able to understand and also to invest into it because without investing into farming and investing in farmers who not only are growing in a very ecologically sound way, but to me, there is another layer on top of it that oftentimes within the local food scene is not reflected. I wanna support farmers, but there is also conversation around systemic poverty, right? How do people afford to eat organic food locally grown when people are poor? So how are you dealing with that? Because that is, a, that's a loaded issue. And um, how are you working to create some solutions on that front personally for yourself? Yeah, you know, I, as a person, specifically as, a, as an educator as well, and a person who actually experienced financial poverty during COVID, I had to leave out of my savings and I was privileged enough that I had a little bit of a saving because I was only working on a part-time basis, supporting of a family of five. So this has been exceptionally difficult for me, you know, having three kids, a wife, and being able to support myself financially. Oftentimes, I really had to think about how do I prioritize my health, my family health, and food has always been the medicine, but how do you provide optimum health when you are very scarce in money? So I had to spend a lot more time really reflecting on what does poverty look like and who's really poor? What is our definition culturally of a poverty? Because in many countries, they might have a financial disparity, but they might be rich in fresh produce and an abundance of that one. So here in North America, you know, during COVID, specifically to my cooks, I speak about this reality of uh, poverty and the idealism of wanting to support locality and local ingredients, but also to be empathetic about where you are right now in your life for your ability to be sustainable, primarily from your own place. So those conversations around uh, sustainability, starting from the people above and beyond the planet, have to be based on uh, financial reform. When uh, the average uh, income for a lot of uh, people, specifically in the food industry, it's a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Minimum wage really, it's a, it's a health hazard because people are not able to eat sufficient food that is a dense in nutrient. You look at the, the new Canada Food Guide that after many, many years have shifted from eating a lot of a meat protein into a lot of a vegetables high in legumes and support, which has been extremely great. But at the same time, that's not really reflected accessibility for many people across Canada. Over 450,000 people a day rely on food banks in Toronto. Over 4 million people at nighttime to go sleep hungry for many communities across Canada don't have access to clean water. So when we look into 
the systematic issues specifically around access to food, it, we have to really think as a community advocating for a living wage. So going back, how do you have access to produce for $7 for a bunch of asparagus is when we really fight, and that's the word, we really have to fight for our own health to fight advocacy for a living wage. A living wage nowadays, we're talking about 22 to $24 per hour. Minimum wage is a $15 per hour. Right. So. There's a yeah. disconnect. There's this, definitely this a disconnect. How COVID has changed how we all view the restaurant industry? Because I think the last two years have been very difficult for everybody. Um, restaurants were closed and, and there were a lot of issues for operators. But it's also shone the spotlight on some things that are maybe not as good in the industry as they could be. How do you think the pandemic has given us a better awareness of what needs to be changed? And you've touched on a few of those issues, living wage. Um, there's a labor shortage right now going on in the industry. Can't find enough people to work. How has the industry, how is the industry going to have to deal with these issues moving forward? Because I think it's exposed a lot of weaknesses. Yeah, those uh, we really had, we, we were forced to confront uh, many of the issues or the isms that many of us have been experiencing. Many of the isms for my own personal experience and also through my studies last year, I just actually, one thing that COVID forced me to was to go back to university and finish my master in environmental studies. So last year, you know, during COVID, I just had to buckle down and focus and being able to finish my master's. So that was wow. a, one of my uh, great accomplishments that I've done during COVID. Congratulations. It wasn't easy, but I think there is an element of a resilience for a lot of cooks to like, keep your mouth shut, put your head down and just like <laughs> keep on going through. Um, I feel that we've been forced to confront many of the isms and a lot of the conversations that before many people were having behind doors, social media, because that was the only space for people to be able to navigate and having conversations, a lot of those isms have been addressed and many people have been shaken and many people have been walking. And uh, those isms nowadays become like normal conversations inside the room, inside the boardroom, inside the kitchen. And a lot of the things that before people were able to tolerate, nowadays they don't tolerate anymore. Based on my own personal experience of working in the food industry for 25 years, I've been confronted with a lot of racism. I've been confronted with a lot of prejudice. I participated indirectly and directly through misogynistic conversations, mm -hmm. homophobic conversations, uh, and acceptance uh, about the current uh, way of living. That's the things that, that unfortunately are still part of the culture in the hospitality industry. And it's not only the hospitality industry, but it's in many industry. A patriarchal way of living, a way that is very much built on capitalism, which is something that I wanna address a little bit more. So those conversations are there now and we have to confront them. When you're finding yourself in a boardroom with a you know, primarily you know, heterosexual white man and now you're finding yourself a, a woman, a woman of color, a queer person, 
having to be part of those boardrooms, demanding for systematic changes. And I feel that as challenging as COVID has been, it really empowered many voices that were silenced for the longest time. And I feel very optimistic because now we have only an opportunity to move forward with real changes. And people acknowledge and understand the difference between real systematic changes and tokenism as well. Mm -hmm. So those conversations that before were not accepted when I went to school, now those conversations are actually encouraged, you know, in many places, not every places, but in many places, yeah. uh, from an institutional level to a kitchen, you know, while before a lot of a young man inside kitchens, it could be very uh, obscene with foul language and with physical abuse toward women or toward the colleagues, now this conduct is unacceptable. So I'm feeling very optimistic. Um, I feel that change, it's very, very gradual. I feel that many of the issues that we've been having for hundreds of years are not gonna change overnight, you know? But small little steps that really gives me the courage to be able to continue my advocacy. So as someone who's faced racism in the industry, and probably in various parts of your life, not just in your work and professional, what have been some of the barriers that you've had to deal with and how have you dealt with it? Um, I know you're saying the change is happening now, which is fabulous. Some people would say it's still happening too slowly and it needs to be you know, increased uh, somewhat. Um, what have those barriers been like for you and how are you using your own experience to change what it's like for, for perhaps some other younger people coming into the industry who are maybe not as willing to put up with, you know, the length of time it takes to change things. How are you helping those younger people? You know, I, I've been privileged enough for the past year to have an agency called Quell. And the agency responsibility is really finding meaningful employment in the hospitality industry for myself. I call it a privilege because I've been cooking in Toronto for over 25 years. Um, I find myself pound for pound that I'm just as skillful as many of my colleagues, but I've never really been given the same opportunities like many of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. When I look at the body of educators uh, in a higher level, there are very few people of color when you look at into the food scene in Toronto for executive black chefs, again, it's a very, very, very small percentage. And so it's for women and so forth. So I feel that my own personal experience has really shaped me in becoming courageous and advocating for this food justice mm -hmm. or social justice changes. And I'm in a privileged place that through social media and also my workplace, I'm able to shape the next generations of cooks. I feel that the word courageous, it's something that a lot of cooks or chefs are because it takes a moment of real humbleness to be able to make yourself vulnerable to somebody else's judgment and criticism. So I just wanna applaud for everyone who is in the, in the field of having to constantly be scrutinized by somebody else's um, opinions. Mm -hmm. And I find that that courage has translated in my own personal and academic and work 
to really become a voice for those ones who have been silenced. You know, for me to be in a room, you know, and the students, they come to me, it's like, excuse me, are you the chef here? And I'm like, I am, how are you? They're like, I've never seen a black chef in school. And as much as I feel sadness yeah. with acknowledgement, the fact that they never seen anyone that looked like them, I think the element of a visibility, it's really important, but that's not enough. You actually have to say and do things for real change. Otherwise, uh, I'm one of the very few privilege. And if I don't exercise my privilege, it is really counterintuitive for me to be in that particular space. So the conversations around racism and homophobia and gender inequality and oppression based on your own religious, religious belief, those are the things that nowadays, as slow they are, I can feel the change and I wanna be part of the change. And I want my students to look at food above and beyond the la joie de vivre, you know, the joy of cooking and enjoying mm -hmm. yourself and so forth. Why do we cook? What are the changes that we can do through food? So food advocacy, whichever realm, I feel that it's a mandatory for the next generation above and beyond vocational culinary skills to really think about it in a more holistic, to be more sustainable through the lens of the planet, the people, and obviously because we work in a capitalistic system, to really think about what are our profit margins, because that's the nature of our business. And the profit margins, the, the capitalistic system of profit margin doesn't really allow us to see a portfolio of benefits. That's what I like to see. Instead of just to think about only the five, eight, nine, 10% profit margin, what is our portfolio of benefits in changing the current food system? That's a loaded question. That's a lot in there for sure you're packing in. Um, Ironically, when you look at the schools, the schools have a lot of diversity in their students. They're coming from different groups all over the world. And yet when they graduate, as you said, there's not that many black chefs leading restaurants. So that disconnect has to be very hard for these students who think, how can I break through? And I think you're a great role model for them because they see that you have, and, and it's important to see that, that visibility of, of, of black people in the industry. What more can the industry do to push this so that we're not waiting another 10 or 20 years for change? What would you like to see the executive level do to make sure that this reality changes quickly? Yeah, you know, I am a strong believer in a conscious intentions. When you consciously making change, wanting to, it's, it has to be an intentional thing. It hasn't been Changes cannot be done just because somebody else is asking for it. Changes has to be done because you believe that those changes are actually gonna be beneficial for you. So again, going back into the portfolio of benefits, having a very diverse group of people within your space, what are the benefits that your company, your corporation, your restaurant will be gaining out of it? Right. Oftentimes, I feel that many industry, because of build very much in capitalism, we are thinking on, a, we are providing a financial gain to those people who are working for us. 
but we are not really reflecting the amount of benefits that those people are providing for our company above and beyond the physical skills on doing particular things. So I think that a lot of executives, they have to really shift in the frame of mind and mentality. Currently, there are a lot of a conversation around DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, where before those conversations were not there. And I think that conversation is good but what are really the long-term impact that you want to do it? So for us, with my members at Quell, when we are partnering with companies to do training around diversity, equity, and inclusion, we want to know what were some of the problems that you had before? And now that we're doing this training, can you come back in three months to us and say, those are the actual things that we have implemented? This kind of a training had really allowed us to benefit immensely because now the morale of our employees are higher. The way we're recruiting people, as an example, in my mm -hmm. current workplace, um, you know, the amount of a diversity in an executive level are very small. So the question is like, how do we recruit? Where do we go seek with intention for people? Not because the HR telling us that we have to meet our quota to look right. for certain BIPOC communities or to looking for members of the LGBTQ plus two, what are within the institution mandate? What is our ideology? What is our philosophy? Because the CEO can constantly change. The, um, the chair of the school can change. But when the principles, the ideology and the philosophy, it's there, this is what people have to live by. So I'm a strong believer that at this moment right now, those conversations are there. There's still a lot of work to be done but at least now we can have this conversation because when I attended school 20, 25 years ago, those conversations were not there. People, they were not really thinking about it. And uh, I've never seen anyone that looked like me. So now, you know, there's really nothing major to applaud and celebrate, but there is a moment of inspiration. So now this is the moment to like continue and not to slow down. Very well said. So obviously when the pandemic hit and we, we got a lot of groups coming up saying, you know, save hospitality, change hospitality, we touched on a few things that have to change with racism and systemic racism being one of them. What other things would you like to see improved in the industry? We talked a little bit about sustainability um, and wages, you know, and how low they are and they need to be brought up to a living wage. Are there other areas that we should also be looking at in order to make the industry stronger and more sustainable moving forward? Yeah, you know, the word sustainability nowadays, it becomes like a bad word. Sustainability becomes like, ooh, are you eating organic broccoli? <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean sustainability? And I feel that to me, the way we have to really think about our food system is to really reflect on the, the elephant in the room. Rosanna, the elephant in the room is really capitalism. You know, we are living in a capitalistic food system that is really creating a lot of issues around systemic poverty. Mm -hmm. So we cannot take away the elephant in the room and try to come back to the issues. So yesterday <clears throat> I was in an olive oil uh, class 
masterclass in olive oil. So we give you the simple analogy about how capitalism is really impacting our food system. Italy, they consume approximately 250,000 liters of olive oil yearly. But no, they consume 350,000 liters of olive oil per year, but they can only produce 250,000 liters of olive oil, but they export the 600,000 liters of olive oil. How can that be possible? So capitalism, it can show through this simple example of olive oil mm -hmm. that now a lot of a company corporation through greenwashing, they can go to Spain, they can go to Greece and have an office in Rome, have an office in Milan and bring olive oil in gigantic shipping containers from right. Europe to North America. North America through branding and marketing strategies, those gigantic olive oil companies can be in every single shelf life with the branding and packaging called the Italian olive oil. Cannot even spell properly, but that's a secondary thing. So now people are receiving really cheap, not great quality, already mm -hmm. rancid olive oil and people they finding themselves working for minimum wage and making those corporations become richer and richer. Now, from an environmental standpoint, there is a degradation for land because now we are consume, we are producing more than we can consume. So from an environmental standpoint, we are lost. When it comes about the people, people are working below minimum wage across North America in order for those capitalistic companies to make a highest profit margin. And the profit, again, for them is the highest, but the people at the bottom is the lowest. So how far and how long more do we can continue working in a way where companies and corporations they become richer and richer and the people, they become poorer and poorer. And at the same time, our environment is really going to a loss. Now, if you look at a couple of years ago in California, they had a major fire. So a lot of regions around, as an example, Napa Valley, they lost a lot of a winery, they lost a lot mm -hmm. of a farmland and so forth. If you look at right here in Canada with a lot of a flood, torrential rain, a lot of a farmers have right. lost their land. So now the supply chain is having a major impact. But again, when we look at into it, to me, it's really the capitalistic food system that we are so deeply entrenched, you know? The bottom line, that's the only thing that we're looking for because we live in a capitalistic world. You know, profit margins at one point, a lot of restaurateurs were happy with a 15% profit margin. So after loss of everything, 15%. Now during COVID, if you're making between eight and 5%, it's like a hooray, <laughs> a hooray, right? So to me, prior of making changes, I think that many of us will really have to speak about the current capitalistic food system. I'm not there saying that, you know, the Pandora box has already been opened. So I'm not right. advocating to find a, a new regime of communism and socialism and so forth. But it's important for people to acknowledge and have a sense of awareness about how deeply this problem is. When you acknowledge it collectively about the problem, then we can slowly start to think about broader changes. If you look at the geopolitical system right now, as an example with the war, simple way for us to think is about the cost of oil, you know, the cost of a flower, you know, and how 
those company and corporation having a monopoly over people. So as long as we don't really think about this capitalistic system, as long as we don't really think about food sovereignty, the right for people to be able to have a little bit of a land to grow food and having control, having really sovereignty out of their own food, out of their own health. So to me, on an everyday basis of uh, managing a restaurants and looking at this and looking at, those things are important, but we have broader systemic issues that from a, a municipal, a provincial and a federal level, we really have to advocate for those changes uh, as a society. Racism, it's a deeply entrenched in every single layer of those issues. Well, you've touched on a huge, huge issue that is going, I mean, we could debate this for hours and hours. Um, but I think it's interesting because now that prices are, you know, are growing so much uh, higher every day and the people inflation is, is becoming such a, a huge issue for everybody. I think people maybe will start to look at this a little bit more seriously because it's affecting everybody in different ways, right? So I think that conversation will continue uh, um, over the next while. I mean, it's not gonna be solved overnight, but I think you've put it into great perspective for everybody to better understand how it impacts everybody. Um, one, of the, one of the things too that has happened in the industry over the last two years because of the pandemic is this whole discussion about long hours and how you know, people are earning minimum wage, but also being expected to work long hours. And people having had more time during the last two years to spend with their families have suddenly realized there's a whole different world that they've never been part of. How do you think the whole issue of hours and flexibility will play out in the industry as we start returning to more, um, you know, regular working habits uh, with the pandemic starting to eventually become better? So to me, a perfect example, not perfect, but a quite a great example of a change within the restaurant industry. I would like to think about the restaurant called Marvin. So the chef Chris Loki and his team and the owners are really doing something special within the place. They're really reflecting on many of the issues that you and I are confronting at this moment right now. Every single person works the front of the house or back of the house, everybody gets paid the living wage. So $22 per hour is the entry fee for you to work in the restaurant. Consciously and intentionally, they are aiming to hire BIPOC communities and members of the LGBTQ+. So whenever they're looking for skillful people, mm -hmm. they're looking for people not only that have the cultural understanding of the sustainability approach, but they're looking with intention hiring and recruiting people from diverse members, primarily to benefit mm -hmm. from this portfolio of benefits. The other thing that they're doing as well as a perfect example, they have a no tipping policy. Yes, I've heard about now, that. As tipping is so deeply rooted again around racism, around poverty, they don't believe in tipping. So they encourage their guests not to tip because every single person provides a living wage. Fabulous. They're doing cooking by using primarily local ingredients to 100 kilometer foods. So to me, you know, oftentimes people, they need to see someone who's doing something really special and understand that while you're still aiming to meet your bottom line and ensuring that your business can be sustainably mm -hmm. viable, 
profitable, there are ways it to be done. So I'm using Marvin as an example. Great example. As an example of the possibility, you know, Langdon Hall as well are going through those particular changes as well. So it is not really impossible. It only requires information, education, and the desire, the desire, yeah. the desire of wanting to make systemic changes because you can still meet a percentage of your profit margin that you're able to sustain yourself, your family, and your business while you're making sustainable approach to change. Again, and the sustainability to me, it's not just the, the planet, you know, the ethos. Oh, of, totally. Of, yeah. It's the every single aspect, you know, to look on like the hands that actually put those seeds in the ground, the hands that actually harvested those ones that package the food. So it is a broader, it is more complex, but there are ways of people that are able not only doing it, but actually executing exceptionally well with delicious food. It's a great example. And I think we need more of those examples to show the way for others to be convinced that it can be done because that's part of the problem. They may not be convinced that it can be done. Um, on the same note, mental health and wellness has become a huge topic in, in the last two years. I think we're having a lot more discussion about mental health and well-being for, for staff. Do you feel like there's some progress on that, on that front? And what would you like to see be done differently to, to make that more effective for more restaurants to, to, uh, to be more serious about this whole area? Absolutely. You know, Hassel Vissal with the 9 to 5 program, uh, advocating, educating around mental health. And there's something that has always been a, a stigma and a taboo for people in the food industry to confront, specifically for people in the hospitality industry, to confront the impact of a mental health. We always put our health secondary to the joy and the satisfaction for a customer. You know, the, the restaurateur, the chefs, the business owners, they're so exploitative of the people that work for them because their bottom line is to ensure that the customer is happy. When the customer is happy, we have a return customers. At whose cost? And that's the problem, at whose cost? No matter what, you know, the customer's satisfaction becomes prior to anybody else's health. And there's been a lot of people who have not only suffered from mental health, there've been people who became addicted to different Alcohol. kinds of substances. And there have been people who actually committed suicide due to the extreme amount of mental health. Those conversations before were, again, very hidden, but now people feel a, a bit more whole because it becomes, it becomes like a normal thing to acknowledge those stigma. issues. So those issues, again, from restaurant to restaurants, they vary. You know, before was a normal thing. We were laughing with my cooks. I was like... I've done three shifts this weekend. I actually worked three doubles. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, I worked three doubles with a sense of a pride. Meantime, on Sunday, I'm totally dead. No time for myself, no time for yeah. my family, no time for anything. But there was this sense of a culture within the hospitality that this is normal, this is okay. Mm -hmm. If you really want to become a great chef, those are the things that you have to do. Again, to whose cost? You know, and when your health becomes at hazard, when you're losing your family, you're losing your friends, yeah. you know, alcohol and drugs, they become your best friends, and then you become a toxic person. So the goal for us as educators and the people in the food industry 
is to prevent uh, this uh, cycle of abuse, you know, an abuse that is really deeply entrenched in this uh, structure where we, as people in the hospitality industry, we normalize it, you know? So now mental health, it becomes a part of your everyday health. Just like you need to go and see a dentist every now and then, and you need to go and see your annual checkup, it's gonna become a norm for many establishments to provide a, a, a social network of support out there. Marben provides an $850 a year for people to take care about as a benefit. It's totally Obviously. up to you to determine what are your needs. You know, we are working eight to 10 hours a day. We give you a living wage, but we are not going to burn you out because it is really not long-term financial gain for right. us. It doesn't make sense in the long-term. Exactly. So I see a lot of food service chains doing more on this front with mental health benefits, as you said, and it's great that Marvin is doing that as well. Um, but I don't know that a lot of independent restaurants have been able to do that. Do you see more of those restaurants coming on stream doing that? Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily the expert in restaurant because I'm, I'm not a restaurant owner. I only speak to some of my colleagues and I have like a peripheral view and knowledge about sure. what's going on out there. I'm not in the, in the trenches every day. Uh, no, a lot of a restaurant, they're not necessarily supporting the cooks yet or the front of the house yet. Right. But they're going to find themselves shortly that they will have to because it's inevitably need that change and people they're comparing. Why am I gonna come and work for you here when that place can offer me all of those things? So now a lot of my cooks live in school, they're like, chef, is there somewhere that I can go work with that can offer me a living wage? It's like, oh, you're not just looking for you to go and work in this high-end restaurant and getting paid <laughs> a day wage, you know, a day yeah. wage, my cooks, they're scared going to work somewhere when somebody's going to say to them, you're going to work $120 or $150 day rate. It's like, it's 2022. How do we still offer a day wage? And our restaurant, sure. they're still very much exploitative of cooks. So our responsibility is to really inform at this moment right now and eventually come up with like policies that prevent restaurateurs to be exploitative of people. So a lot of the changes around mental health are not quite there yet, but those conversations are becoming inevitable. And I think as we experience more labor shortages and it gets harder to hire people, that probably will become a, a more important point for a lot of people to, to offer as part of their benefits package. So, so hopefully that will change as well. Um, as a way to wrap up our discussion today, I know the pandemic has uh, changed a lot of things for everybody everywhere, not just in this industry, but also very much so in this industry. What, what can you say have been the most important lessons for you during this pandemic and how it's shaped you and your life specifically? Oh, um, I... I... The biggest impact for me, it's uh, to look at my, my number one currency, which is my health. <laughs> the currency that it was before was like, oh, 
predominantly monetary. That was the currency. The, that dollar was my incentive. Plus, you know, like the joy of cooking. But that was my incentive was like making money, uh, working in a restaurant, having particular aspirations were not necessarily deeply uh, rooted on health. When you have your health, you're able to do more things. The, the, the lack of a health, oftentimes it becomes uh, deeply rooted on many of the systemic issues that we talked about. You know, lack of a financial ability for you to eat healthy, a workplace where it's uh, emotionally, physically, mentally draining you and normalizing it. So my health became my priority. So the question is like, how do I invest in my own health and the health of my family? So that became like my main focus because without health, I don't have anything. So that became like, oh, I never really thought about it. It almost took me like 40 years of my life for me to come to this epiphany. And why aren't we investing this conversation? Why don't we say to people, you need to be healthy in order for you to live, period. You know, what are the things that, that prevents you from being healthy. So current, my number one priority became like the currency of choice, which is my health. Then the other one made me, once I started from myself, I started to look around me. And because I was tucked inside my house with my family, I started to look into the void that I created in the pursuit of my career as a chef. You know, and I feel that many chefs are very, um, with all the due respect, very narcissistic. Not in a necessarily narcissism from just egotism, but narcissism because they have like this desire of wanting to both please and satisfy, because that's mm -hmm. the nature of many people in the hospital. It's like to please and satisfy. Please people, sure. Cook because we love to give that feeling and it get this immediate joy and satisfaction with someone says, oh man, the food made me feel really, really wonderful. That's driven by that desire, right? Mm -hmm. But being at home made me really reflect on my lack of ability to really put my family as a priority, you know, having to confront my own ism as a man, as a husband, as a father and so forth, and trying to shift on what are the things that I have to do to really find that balance. So my aspiration as a chef had to kind of shift slowly. And this, this has been going on for me quite some time, but COVID really just like had me put it like in a pressure cooker of having to <laughs> confront those issues. So my health, my family, and then my academic need, you know, how do I transition from my joy of cooking acknowledging, understanding the learning that I've done, how can I learn? So going back to university, it provided me the language and the academic understanding on so many issues that in the kitchen, we don't really talk about it. So higher education provided me a better critical understanding on the why. And now I'm taking that why and incorporating it in my everyday life as a person, as a chef and as educator. So my students, they're not we chef, my students, they're white chef, right? So slowly, these two years has been a really a slow growth from a personal level health. Mm -hmm. My family level became my focus and my, my own personal academic growth. 
but my academic is not driven for my desire to be an academic, but mm-hmm. it's like primarily deeply rooted in systematic change. That is quite the epiphany. That is a lot of learning in the last two years. So not only are you great at teaching, but you've been able to learn on the other side, which is fabulous. And I think that learning will make you a stronger teacher, but also a better chef. So I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. You have brought so much, um, so many different perspectives into, into fruition here. And it's been, it's been great listening to you. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time today to be with us and to share um, your experiences and your insights. And I wish you all the best moving forward with all this new learning. So thank uh, you very much. I really appreciate it for you to give me a platform to be able to share my own learning and my own personal growth. I feel very encouraged to have uh, more people who are growing with me for the next uh, coming as well. And looking forward for us uh, to stay connected and perhaps even share a meal together. For sure. That sounds wonderful. Love to see you in person someday soon. So thanks again, Chef Bashir, and all the best. Thank you very much. Take care, Rosalie. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.